I think there's very there's still very little understanding of what those boundaries are. And I think part of the reason of that is that we still don't actually have very good knowledge of the empirics of, uh, of cases. So we know a little bit about Northern Uganda, we know a little bit about Kenya, we know a little bit about, uh, probably know more about the former Yugoslavia, but we, there's, it takes a long time to get a deep empirical sense of the effects, how to measure certain effects, and then how to refine the types of questions that we're asking. And what I'm particularly interested in and what I'm going to talk about today is how we understand and maybe we've overlooked um, the relevance of what I call nons in the field. So I consider that things are in cases and out cases and I call them not, you might want to call them non-cases, but I think even brought more broadly there is a host of nons that we consistently talk about um, that don't get sufficient scrutiny in their own right. So we talk a lot about non-state actors, right? So NGOs in the relationship to the International Criminal Court or to international criminal justice, um, non-member states, so those states that aren't members of the ICC, non-intervention, so places where the ICC doesn't intervene in, non-victims. Um, this is something that a couple of scholars in particular, Sarah Kendall and Sarah Nguyen, are working on. Uh, I don't go through it, but the idea here is that when, for example, as I'm sure many of you know, you had the collapse of the Kenyatta case um, in November. Well, part of the collapse of the case means that legally recognized victims all of a sudden are no longer victims because there's no case for them to be victims to. So there's this creation of a category that I would call non-victims, or right, non-victimization of individuals, and then non-targets. Uh, those individuals or those parties that aren't targeted for judicial sanction by judicial institutions like the ICC. Um, and so what I'm trying to do is establish, I guess, an appreciation of the fact that there are all of these nons and that they need their own, uh, they, they need their own analysis or their own scrutiny. And so the presentation that I have today and hopefully the paper that'll come out of it um, focuses on three nons that I think require analytical and cru uh, critical scrutiny. And they're um, the politics of the ICC's relationships with non-member states, cases of non-intervention by the International Criminal Court, and the effects of the ICC on non-targets, the effects of the ICC on those it decides not to target with an arrest warrant. So I'll go through um, each. So in terms of non-member states, um, my focus here is primarily on the United States, which is a non-member state of the International Criminal Court, but I also want to say a little bit about the UN Security Council and BRIC states, both of which are, are uh, coalitions of states that are dominated by non-member states of the ICC. So I think if we look at the literature on the International Criminal Court, we actually still have a very little understanding of the relationship, generally speaking, between particular states and the ICC. This is slowly changing, and so in 2013 you had the first book a uh, really interesting book by Ronan Steinke that was specifically about the relationship between Germany and the international and international criminal justice. But you still don't know how, there's never been, a, as far as I know, a book or even a paper written about how the UK has treated uh, international criminal justice in the ICC or France. Um, but so while that, um, while um, there's more literature on, the sub, on these kinds of relationships, there's still not much except for one relationship, which is the relationship between the United States and the ICC. And this may seem sen sensible or predictable. Obviously, the U U.S. gets it, the lion's share of attention in many sub-disciplines and disciplines. But there's also something ironic, um, interesting, and potentially even problematic with that much attention going to 
the relationship between the ICC and a state that has decided that it won't be part of the court. Um, and moreover, I think if we look at the literature that does examine the relationship between the United States and the ICC, it's not really about what the relationship would be with an institution and a non-member state. It's really about what's the relationship between the institution, the ICC, and this global um, superpower. Um, so um, if we look even deeper, I think what analysis shows us is two things, really. One, you have analyses which tell you why the United States may not be a member state. That's it. It doesn't tell you what that relationship would look like, but the United States has certain aversions to international criminal justice and the ICC, and so that's explained. Or you get analyses which say this is a negotiation of power and interest between an independent institution and a global superpower. And if we look, for example, at the best work I think that's been done on this, which is David Bosco's recent book called Rough Justice, which I encourage everybody to read. This, it's all in the subtitle, right? The subtitle of the book is The ICC in a World of Power Politics. It's not what happens when an institution like the ICC dedicates a ton of time and a ton of energy into a relationship with a state that has decided it's not going to be part of its game. Um, and what I want to argue and what I do argue is that there's something more and something important to say about the relationship uh, between the ICC and the US, given the fact that the ICC is not a member state. There's something important about being a non-member state. And what I argue in particular is that because the US is not a member state of the ICC, it actually exacerbates some of the problems and political tensions that the court is already facing. But before I get into what I mean by that, I think it's worthwhile taking a step back and just broadly talking about the very briefly the history and the trajectory of the relationship between the ICC on the one hand and the United States. I'm sure many of you already know, but at the Rome, St at the Rome Statute Conference in 1998, the United States was one of seven member states to vote against the creation of the ICC. But on his last day of office, um, President Bill Clinton decided that he would sign the Rome Statute and then said, but <coughs> I don't advise um, the Bush administration to go forward and actually ratify it. The Bush, sorry, the Bush administration then went into an all-out hostile war against the court. Um, it does this weird thing. It unsigns the Rome Statute, which has never, ever happened before. <clears throat> it, it requests that about, uh, I think it's like 110 or 100 and something like that, 90 or 100, I don't know the actual numbers, but it makes states through coercive diplomacy sign bilateral immunity agreements, which ensure that those states won't ever send an American citizen to the US, uh, sorry, to the ICC, and passes the American Service uh, Members Protection Act, which is also called the Hague Invasion Act because it gives the president the executive power to essentially invade the Hague if an American citizen ever ended up at the ICC. And more importantly, it prevents uh, the United States from ever giving material or non-material support to the court. Now, what then happens is the Bush administration basically slowly learns that it doesn't really make sense to be this hostile. Obviously, there's something ironic about going all out against an institution that you don't think exists because what you're saying is, well, it's a, it's a big enough problem and you're kind of justifying its existence in its own right. So we see a certain degree of thawing of relations. We get a Darfur referral. Darfur was referred to the ICC in 2005, which required the US to abstain in the UN Security Council vote. And we have certain statements 
um, most famously probably then Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice saying that those bilateral immunity agreements and therefore our hostility towards the ICC was like shooting ourselves in the foot. Um, and the Obama administration then comes into power and takes this even further, engages with the ICC, starts talking about cooperation, it attends Assembly of States parties meetings, it really interestingly expands the rewards for justice program, which is basically a bounty program within the US State Department, and it starts to include um, individuals who have been indicted by the ICC. So it says if you can get us these individuals, we'll pay you $5 million, which is now produced an awkward situation because two individuals have been surrendered with the help of the United States to the Hague. First, Bosco Ntaganda, who in 2013 walked into the US Embassy in Kigali and said, basically, I'm done, take me to the ICC. And more recently, just a couple of weeks ago, a member of the Lord's Resistance Army, Dominic Nguyen, who was apparently uh, surrendered himself or was captured by the Seleka rebels in the Central African Republic and then transferred to the US. And because he was transferred to US custody, the US may technically owe the Seleka group, who they think are obviously terrible and who are terrible, they may owe them about $5 million for cooperating and for fulfilling a bounty. Um, in any case, so this is the kind of trajectory. And what that trajectory sounds like is a really nice success story, right? And the ICC sees this as a victory tale. It, it's convinced, um, it, it makes it appear, and proponents of the court will tell you this story in a way that suggests that the ICC convinced the world's biggest superpower to cooperate and to engage with the court. It's a really nice, positive narrative. Um, but it also makes it appear, and I think this is problematic, that the court is actually infatuated with a non-member uh, non state. And the problem here is that because the, ICC, uh, sorry, the United States is engaging but not obliging itself or not putting any legal obligations on itself to actually cooperate, it's kind of what I call this halfway house of engagement, right? So <coughs> it has the best of both worlds. So the US can use the ICC or engage the ICC wherever it sees fit, and everybody will say, oh, thank you so much. We're so happy that you think our work is relevant. And then they can also say in other instances, yeah, but we don't actually have any legal obligations to do this stuff, and we're not actually going to cooperate with you on stuff that we don't want to. So for example, it's very happy to claim that, we're, uh, that Washington is pro-justice as a result of supporting a referral of Syria to the ICC. And at the same time, in the same breath, it can basically tell you, but the, but the ICC can investigate enhanced interrogation techniques in Afghanistan. It can say that we should intervene in Libya and target Gaddafi, but at the same time, in the same referral, it can tell the world that actually the, uh, the ICC can't investigate members of non, uh, citizens of non-member states, right? So it has both of this, you know, we'll use it when it's good for us and invoke it when it's good for us, and then when it's not, we have no problem turning the other eye because we actually don't have any uh, legal obligations under the Rome Statute. And I think, uh, even more problematically, if we look at the record of the ICC, it's quite clear uh, whether or not this was uh, on purpose or not, but the ICC has only intervened in those situations thus far uh, where the US doesn't have significant or particularly strong political interests. Um, or where, on adversely, the, uh, the United States actually has an interest in castigating a particular group of individuals or a particular, a particular government. 
Um, now, this may be seen as pragmatic politics, and I think the ICC sees this as pragmatic, right? We're trying to engage the world's superpowers, and we're not going to step on its toes. We're going to kind of be very careful about this. But I think it also hurts the court's legitimacy. And you can see this again in David Bosco's work. He claims that the ICC accommodated U.S. power in order to prove to the, uh, to the United States that, it, that the U.S. could engage on it. And then again, you see why the ICC is so invested, borderline infatuated with this relationship, because if it did accommodate the U.S., then it really is an internal success story for the court that it managed to get all of this positive engagement. And, um, but I think if we... Um, I think it's still going to be problematic to those states who have decided to sign up to the Rome Statute and commit to the International Criminal Court that the ICC and its proponents spend more time um, thinking about and worrying about and engaging a non-member state. So I think the recent backlash that we've seen against the ICC and in terms of its legitimacy crisis should be taken, this, uh, this, this dynamic should be taken into the context, right? So again, ICC infatuation with the United States plus ICC accommodation of US interests and thirdly, US manipulation of the ICC. If you're a member state who's committed to a project of international criminal justice by ceding some of your freedoms or some of your legality or your, or your politics by signing up to the Rome Statute, I think this has to look frustrating. And it certainly could look offensive that, again, more time is spent on accommodating um, and uh, accommodating the United States. Um, whereas I think there's a certain idea, certainly in some African states in particular, that the ICC isn't paying enough attention to its, their concerns. And I think this is genuinely uh, a valid argument to make. I think, I think it, it, it should be offensive to member states that the court's most important relationship is with a state that won't be part of, again, the, the institution. I think relatedly what we see is this happening, playing out in the same way with the UN Security Council, which of course the three most powerful states in the Security Council, Russia, China, and the United States, aren't member states of the ICC. And I fully agree with Bill Chavis's argument where he says, well, this whole debate about, um, about the International Criminal Court being biased or unfairly targeting African states really isn't about neocolonialism, and it really isn't about the ICC picking the wrong cases. What it is, is about the ICC reaffirming once again that the UN Security Council can use institutions like the ICC, which all of these African states, or many of these African states signed up to, and the UN Security Council can use and abuse what looked to be an independent institution once again. So I think what Chavis is arguing, what I would argue as well, is that when, for example, the UN Security Council refers a situation uh, in Darfur to the ICC and then refers a situation in Libya to the ICC, and in both referrals, it says that the ICC cannot investigate citizens of non-member states, and the ICC just takes that and says, I'm not going to complain about that, or that, that's not a problem in terms of equality before the law, or that's just, not, that's just too political for us, we can't, we can't abide by that. I think that, again, becomes part of this problem, and it makes it appear like the ICC is actually just reaffirming the hierarchy of international politics that has the UN Security Council on top. And this is not a new problem for virtually all African states, but basically all, all states outside of the UN Security Council, that there's a problem with the hierarchy in international relations that has these five permanent states at the top. 
And then lastly, in terms of non-member states, I look a little bit at the BRICS states. Um, I don't include South Africa in, in this analysis, but obviously, so three out of the four BRICS states, uh, uh, Russia, India, and China are non-member states of the ICC. And I think this also needs more scrutiny. Because in international relations, we're being told, or in international politics more broadly, um, we're being told two narratives. One tells you that international criminal justice is here to stay because now we have a permanent ICC. Right? It's a fait accompli. There may be problems, there may be crises, but it's here to stay. And on the other hand, we're being told that the BRIC states are going to fundamentally reorientate um, the hierarchy or the balance of power globally. Right? We're, never, we're not going to live in a unipolar world. The BRIC states are going are to challenge this. And the big question to me is, are these two narratives really compatible when three of those BRIC states are non-member states? Um, and in my preliminary research, I think there's actually, what's interesting is there's a lot more than meets the eye. And because they're non-member states, it tends to be neglected. But Russia has engaged the ICC deeply over uh, Georgia. And it is likely, I think, to engage uh, the ICC if the ICC opens a full investigation into events in Ukraine. Uh, China has actually reiterated, at least um, until a couple of years ago, that it's, it plans to join the International Criminal Court at some stage. And India, which has shown almost no interest in joining the ICC, is actually one of the most interesting engage, uh, engagers on debates regarding the relationship between peace and justice, certainly on the UN Security Council, always bringing up this issue of, well, we need to balance the prerogatives of international accountability with the prerogatives of uh, negotiating peace. But I guess my point here would simply be, if the ICC isn't going to end up where I don't think its proponents want it to end up as being just a Western state that is infatuated with the United States, then this relationship between the court and these key BRIC states needs more attention and needs thinking through. It can't simply be neglected, um, especially as BRIC states gain influence and power and increasingly uh, act boldly on, uh, in the international. So the second non then that I look at is non-interventions. And the last two nons, non-interventions and non-targets, are related to my research on the relationship between peace and justice. And the key claim that I want to make here is that <coughs> cases of non-intervention should be used to refine the hypotheses about what happens when the ICC actually does intervene. And I want to explain this with reference to the case of Syria. Um, because I think all things being equal, which of course they're not, but all things being equal, Syria warrants an ICC investigation, right? If you don't think the ICC, ICC should ever um, intervene in conflicts at all, then, then that's, that's a different kind of argument. But if there's the expectation that the ICC intervenes in situations where there are severe mass atrocities, where there is ongoing conflict that produces mass human rights violation, then it's impossible to argue that Syria doesn't warrant that type of attention. That's, that's essentially what I mean. But of course, what we've seen is that despite numerous attempts, uh, Syria has never been referred uh, to the International Criminal Court by the Security Council. 
Now, claims have been made by both uh, diplomats, academics, as well as people in the media that an ICC intervention uh, would make a solution to the conflict in Syria much more problematic, and that what actually has to happen is that a political process and, a, and with political negotiations needs to be prioritized. That's the way that Syria needs to be resolved. And critics of, the, of ICC interventions make three primary claims regarding in, in support of this point. And I'm sure you've seen them elsewhere because they're constantly recycled across contexts. One is that the ICC risks ruining peace negotiations. Second is that the ICC um, prolongs, can prolong violence by making it, by giving the incentive to actors in a war to actually engage in increased violence. And thirdly, uh, the ICC does nothing to curb atrocities, right? It has no deterrence effect, so even if it intervenes, it's not like people aren't going to continue uh, committing mass atrocities. And the problem is that in Syria we see every single one of these three dynamics without an ICC intervention. So one, we have a protracted, an increasingly protracted civil war. If you look at the stats on deaths, they're, inc they're either increasing or basically stable, but there's no, there's no decrease and they're primarily civilian. Secondly, the character of the war seems to have changed. It's increasingly, an, it, it increasingly appears to be an existential conflict where neither side, where both sides equate winning with ultimate survival. So it's an existential conflict uh, that allows both sides and that has inspired, I think, both sides to kind of view nothing but a military solution by one side or the other as the ultimate way to resolve the war. <coughs> Secondly, mass atrocities continue. They're, they've been committed by all sides. The Commission of Inquiry on Syria has cataloged this. Human Rights Watch has cataloged this. Amnesty International has cataloged this. Everybody's basically cataloged that every that all sides have been committing mass atrocities. Um, and worryingly, their scale and frequency actually appears to be increasing despite increasing scrutiny on an increasing catalog catalogization of the fact that these crimes are being perpetrated. And thirdly, negotiations have failed. So there's been numerous Geneva talks and they failed. And not only is there no ICC pressure on these negotiations, but actually in the last rounds of the Geneva talks, the whole issue of justice, accountability, and human rights was completely dropped from the agenda. So I think this is, this is problematic, right? Without an ICC intervention, all of these doomsday scenarios have actually played out. Now, importantly, and I think this is really importantly, I'm not claiming that the reverse would be true. So this, is, this can never be uh, constructed or interpreted as a claim to suggest that, therefore, if the ICC intervened, violence would dissipate, mass atrocities would, ab uh, would abate, and negotiations could possibly uh, could possibly succeed. Instead, I think, again, this just simply highlights the need that we need better hypotheses. We need better ways of thinking about what happens when the ICC intervenes in ongoing and active conflicts. And in particular, we need a better way of you know, seeing the forest for the trees. I think too often there's a, there's a propensity of scholars and observers to isolate the ICC's interventions and then to attribute to them a certain causality that divorces it from all of the other dynamics of, the, of, of whatever's happening. Whereas it's obvious that all of these three things, again, uh, prolonged violence or increased violence, increased mass atrocities and failed negotiations, 
are the result of completely different factors other than the ICC intervention, because there is no ICC intervention. So even when the ICC does intervene and you have these kinds of effects, and you do have these three things happening, then I think we still need to say, well, is it the ICC that is having these effects, or is it the ICC as a combination of all of these other dynamics that are ongoing um, that result in these terrible uh, things happening and the, the, the protraction of civil war and, and failed peace negotiations? And that, I think, the, the last thing I'll say on this is simply that it may be, and I'm increasingly convinced that, um, again, this goes to seeing the trees for the forest, is that the ICC very often will have much lesser and fewer effects than, than we imagine. And it's only people who are looking for the effects that think that they're, this, they're these great, big, dramatic events. And then thirdly, you can tell I like threes, I guess. <laughs> Everything's in threes. But my third non is non-targets. Um, and these are, I'm looking at actual in-cases, so obviously situations where the ICC does intervene. Um, but what I'm saying is that we need to consider when or what happens when the ICC decides not to target a particular uh, a particular group or a particular government. And my focus here is on two cases that I've looked at, two cases where the ICC has intervened in an ongoing and active conflict, which is northern Uganda and Libya. Um, I think it broadly makes sense, um, but international criminal justice or scholars of international criminal justice and transitional justice more broadly have focused almost entirely on how the ICC affects those who it targets. Right? That's where you'll see some kind of causal mechanism. Um, and we still don't really have much of an understanding of why the ICC decides to target some individuals and some parties and not others. Uh, in my PhD, what I argue is that it's likely the result of a negotiation of the ICC's institutional interests with the interests of the states in which it's intervening. Uh, and I outlined three interests. One is that the ICC has an interest in gaining cooperation to get the evidence required to get an arrest warrant issued. Uh, it has an interest in getting cooperation to actually enforce those arrest warrants, not the same type of cooperation, but both under the umbrella of cooperation. And then thirdly, the ICC has an interest in appearing effective or having the appearance of a global institution that is seen as relevant and useful in international politics. But whatever way you explain um, why the ICC has the particular selectivity it does, I think it's obvious that, the, that its record of selectivity is pretty severe. So it's now had five self-referrals, and in every single instance of a self-referral, only government adversaries or non-state uh, non actors have been indicted. We see this in Uganda with the Lord's Resistance Army, for example. And in the instance of UN Security Council referrals, uh, these have led almost exclusively to government state actors being indicted. Again, in Libya, we see the government and Gaddafi being targeted by the ICC. And of course, the reverse is true. Self-referrals tend to leave governments untargeted. In no instance of a, of a self-referral has the government that referred itself, a referred uh, situation to the ICC ever been targeted by the ICC. And UN Security Council referrals tend to uh, with small exceptions, tend to leave rebels or non-state actors untargeted. Again, in Libya, we see the opposition not being targeted, and the rebels have never been indicted, despite, again, large amounts of evidence that crimes relating to the Rome Statute have been committed. Now, I would suggest, and I think it's pretty, it should be pretty uncontroversial, that when 
a judicial body intervenes in an ongoing act of conflict and exhibits this level of selectivity, it's going to have important effects or it's going to have some kind of effect on that conflict uh, and on the dynamics of both peace and conflict. Of course, the big claim of critics uh, of ICC interventions, which we see, I think, in basically every single uh, instance where the ICC has intervened in an ongoing act, an act of conflict, is that the targets of ICC interventions will recommit or commit anew to violence. You hear this a lot, they'll dig their heels in, uh, and they'll fight to the very bitter death. Within these claims, there's very little differentiation, I think it should be noted, between different types of actors. So non-state actors and governmental actors are assumed to have the same kind of responses to ICC, to the ICC targeting them. So if you look at the newspapers, you can see Joseph Coney of the LRA, and people will claim, oh, because the ICC targeted him, he had no incentive but to dig his heels in and fight to the bitter death, and he couldn't commit to peace negotiations. And if you look at Libya, Muammar Gaddafi has the exact same incentives, right? He has the exact same behavioral patterns, and he'll because the ICC indicted him, he would never commit to peace negotiations, so on and so forth. And so there's no differentiation between those two types of actors, which I think is problematic. And then also it's extremely elite-driven, right? So even if you look at something like the LRA, the question is always, how did the ICC affect Joseph Kony? It's not, how did the ICC affect the other four individuals under Joseph Kony who were indicted, let alone the rank and file of the LRA, which now is seen in the eyes of many as being indicted by the ICC rather than simply its leadership. But what about um, non-targets? So how do ICC interventions affect them? Uh, how are non-targets affected by ICC interventions vis-a-vis conflict, resolution, and peace? Obviously, I think they're affected in three ways. <laughs> um, first of all, um, not being targeted fundamentally legitimizes them as actors, it legitimizes their positions within war, and it legitimizes their use of violence. So again, if we look at the government of Uganda, it clearly saw its own self-referral of northern Uganda to the International Criminal Court as a means to rescue its reputation, as a, me as a means to appear credible and on the side of justice, but it also did so in order, because it believed that it would boost its credibility in attempting to eradicate the LRA militarily. Um, and in Libya, we also see this. When the ICC intervened, the rebels and opposition groups clearly saw this as a kind of moral stamp of approval that what they were doing was right, that what they were doing was about justice, and that their ultimate aim of trying to militarily take over and, and create regime change was being endorsed by the international community via the International Criminal Court. Secondly, um, I think for, for non-targets, the ICC is a very cheap and effective way of delegitimizing and demonizing their opponents. Right? So this goes to the labeling function that the ICC has. When the ICC targets particular groups, they become delegitimized, they become criminalized, they become perceived as evil or whatnot. And in doing so, the ICC creates this asymmetric, what I call an asymmetrical conflict narrative that establishes a clearly good side, the government of Uganda by the Libyan opposition, and an evil criminal side, right? The Gaddafi regime and the Lord's Resistance Army. Now, the crucial thing here to me is that this narrative is not, this, this narrative is not just about apportioning responsibility for who has committed the most atrocities or who is ultimately responsible for human suffering. 
It's a narrative which tells you who's ultimately responsible for the entire conflict itself. And that feeds into particular types of um, views as to what appropriate conflict resolution will look like. So the third thing that I would argue happens is that the combination of the ICC legitimizing its non-targets while delegitimizing the non-targets adversaries is that it makes it a lot easier for the non-target to justify why it won't negotiate peace or why it won't uh, engage or commit genuinely to peace negotiations. Again, I think this is clear in both Libya and northern Uganda. The Libyan opposition in Libya, obviously, and the government of Uganda were able to use the fact that the ICC had indicted their adversaries as a means to justify why they couldn't fully commit to negotiations and negotiate at all with these uh, sanctioned individuals. Um, and instead what we see is that both in, in terms of the government of Uganda and the Libyan opposition is that they committed to military solutions and remained committed to military solutions. The opposition in Libya remained committed until... Uh, obviously until they succeeded in uh, removing the regime and the government of Uganda remains committed to a military solution against the large resistance army. And they're able to do so because the, an implicit message within the asymmetrical conflict narrative is that the elimination of the targeted side of that war, be it by, by their death or military defeat or by their removal and placement in a courtroom in The Hague, is in itself a form of conflict resolution. So the fact that you get rid of these people, again, it can be either militarily or judicially, is viewed within this narrative as how you solve the war. This is why, for example, Luis Moreno Campo, the former prosecutor of the ICC, can say something like, all you need to do in northern Uganda is get rid of Kony, and then there will be peace. The arrogance of such statements is astounding, but it's what they truly believe, that removing these individuals from a conflict is a form of conflict resolution itself. But this leads me to a, what I think is a key finding, is that maybe it's not the targets of the ICC that end up digging their heels in and refusing to negotiate. To me, actually, it seems like when the ICC intervenes and doesn't target particular groups, it's the non-targets that all of a sudden have an incentive and view the ICC's intervention against their adversaries as a means of communicating to them that they can legitimately and in a just way dig their heels in and commit to military solutions. So I think the ultimate hypothesis of critics of ICC interventions that it's the targets that dig their heels and needs to be kind of flipped on its head because there's better evidence, I think, that it's the non-targets non that choose to fight to the bitter death and view it as being sanctioned by the international community. So this is my kind of first attempt to bring some of my thinking over the last six months together, um, simply because I think there's something unique to be said, not just about targets or actual interventions or member states, but something to be said particularly about non-member states, uh, non-targets and non-interventions. As you can see, I've said the word non a lot. Um, and I hope, my, my ultimate hope is really about research design. It's not, it's, it's not necessarily, I hope it leads to better empirical studies, but by a means of starting to ask more interesting and more refined questions and refining the kinds of hypotheses that I think a lot of scholars and observers have held to, but which may not end 
up giving us the most interesting data and leading to the most interesting studies about what actually happens when, uh, when, when the ICC intervenes in ongoing and active conflicts. Thanks.